Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Good to see everyone this morning. Uh, glad you're worshiping with us. My name is David, uh, one of the elders here at Renaissance, and it's a joy to be with you and to be able to preach uh, God's word this morning. Today we'll be continuing our series in the book of Matthew. I'll be in Matthew chapter 24. It'll be kind of a long section, the first 44 verses. So if you need a Bible, sorry, yes, I think that's a problem throughout the sermon, just sort of this, I'll, I'll try to remember. So, yeah, we have Bibles in the back if you need one, and we'll be in the first 44 verses of Matthew. So the book of Matthew, along with the rest of the New Testament, was written in the first century. And throughout this series, as I've had opportunities to preach, one of the things I've tried to sort of highlight, and I think we've highlighted throughout the series, is that Matthew, more so than the other writers of the Gospels, is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. Uh, if you were to read Luke, right, Luke tells the same, many of the same stories. He's talking about the same Jesus, the same life, but he's writing from more of a sort of Gentile perspective. Um, and because of that, I think today's passage requires a little bit of special context. So if you're familiar at all with the Roman Empire or the, sort of the history, uh, in the year 63 BC or BCE, uh, the Romans took over the land of Judah. Uh, and they set up sort of a client kingdom, you might call it. If you think of in the stories of Jesus' birth, right, Herod. Herod was Jewish, but he was sort of employed by the Romans to, to rule over this land. And so in the time of Jesus, that's what's going on, right? The Romans are in control of this area. Now, in the year 66 AD or CE, uh, in the year 66, there's something called the First Jewish Revolt, and this is about you know, 30 to 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And at this time, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people revolted against the Romans. They expelled them from the land of Judah. <clears throat> and so at this point, uh, the Romans fought back. The emperor Nero sent General Vespasian to go sort of put down this revolt. And for a few years, they fought back the Jewish uh, fighters, and they got them back to the walls of Jerusalem. So then a few years later, the year 69, Vespasian becomes the emperor, and then uh, the, the, the general Titus comes. So not Titus from the Bible, but the Roman general Titus comes in the year 70 AD. And he comes and he uh, lays siege to Jerusalem. So when he comes, he comes during the Passover. So a lot of Jews from outside Jerusalem are coming into the city. The Romans who are besieging the city are letting Jews go in, but not letting them come out. Because they know if they hold siege to the city, more people are in there. Food will run out faster. Water will run out faster. And so they lay siege uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And then in the month of August of the year 70, uh, the Roman army eventually breached the defenses, went into Jerusalem, uh, and destroyed the temple. Uh, they invaded the city, destroyed the temple. And the Jewish historian Josephus, who was alive during this time, tells us about the brutality of the Roman army. They enslaved tens of thousands of Jews. They killed and starved, close to, he, he says, close to a million more. And many fled uh, and left. A foreign army had invaded and destroyed the temple, the holy place. And I think this is necessary context for our passage today, even though it came after our passage today. 
To a Jew living in the days of Jesus, the destruction of the temple would be unthinkable. It would be a horror. It was the place of worship. It had been rebuilt when the people came out of exile. They came back to their land and they built this new temple to the Lord. So the fact that the temple's destruction happened approximately 40 years after Jesus' death has caused the passage we're going to look at today to be one of uh, just incredible study, lots of misunderstandings, lots and lots of different interpretations. So buckle up, grab some coffee, make sure you have your Bible open. I'm glad everybody got, everybody got an extra hour of sleep last night. You have coffee so you can all pay attention with our Bibles open to try to understand what this admittedly uh, confusing at times passage is here to tell us. And the good news as well is we have a members gathering after where we're going to eat together. So if you have burning questions about this, about the end times or what it's talking about, we can all eat together and discuss the passage after church. So let's jump into the first three verses. They say this, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he ends chapter 23, Jesus gives a lament over Jerusalem, and then chapter 24 starts with this. He tells them that, in the temp that a time is coming when not a single stone will be left upon another of the temple. Now this is similar to other passages we have of Jesus saying that the temple is going to be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, and those passages tell us he's talking about his body. But here they're walking around the, the physical temple, and he says, soon there will not be one stone upon another. And interestingly, of course, to many, this passage is reason enough to make sure uh, to, that many scholars would tell you the book of Matthew could not have been written uh, before the year 70. Because, of course, it had to be before 70 because Jesus predicted what would happen in the year 70. Despite plenty of evidence that it was likely written before then, of course, to a, to a sort of naturalistic worldview, right? Someone can't talk about something that's going to happen later, so it must be dated after the year 70. But the point is, Jesus tells them the temple will be destroyed, and the disciples ask two questions. When is this going to happen, and what are the signs that this is going to happen? But I think what's even more interesting for our sake is that they seem to presuppose that the temple being destroyed and Jesus is coming back, the end of the age, are going to happen at the same time. They ask this as one big question. So when's this going to happen? Like, when's the end coming? The temple's going to be destroyed. You're coming back. So when is that? And so I think it leads to a very confusing chapter because these things don't happen at the same time, right? We know that the temple gets destroyed in the year 70, and Jesus has not returned. So not to spoil the ending here, but one could argue that throughout this passage, Jesus gives numerous answers to this question of when will this happen? At least in part because they're talking about different things. So as we work through this chapter, we want to see what Jesus says. And again, here towards the beginning, because this passage will have a lot of talk about the end times and all of that, I want to make this point up front. Jesus' goal here is not to sort of satiate all of our curiosity. He's not trying to tell you every detail of what the end times will look like. He's not giving you a perfect roadmap so you can tell exactly what day he'll come back. 
nor is he trying to give us sort of a point-by-point -point explanation of the book of Revelation. In fact, in many ways, he's doing the opposite. He's just saying, be ready, because you don't know when it's going to happen. His main point is to be ready. Be ready for the return of the king, because you don't know when he's coming back. So let's look at verses 4 through 14. The disciples have just asked, when is these things going to happen, and what will be the signs? And so now we're going to see his answer, verses 4 through 14. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we see here, at least in broad terms, that Jesus predicts trials and tribulations will come for his people. He begins by answering their question of what should we expect by saying uh, that not just that we should know what to look for, right, but he starts with a command telling us how we should respond. See that no one leads you astray. He said a minute ago he wants us to be ready, and first, the first part of that is see that no one leads us astray. So what are things that could lead us astray? Well, he says people are going to come in his name, false, false Christs. Wars and rumors of wars, right? Verse 7 tells us that there will be wars between nations, there will be famines, there will be earthquakes. So how do we respond to these things? Do we know that that means it's immediately the final hour? Well, no. Verse 6 tells us that these things will happen. When they happen, the end is not yet. They're the beginning, in verse 8, of the birth pains. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives, gives a list of these signs that he's already spoken of, and he's spoken about many of these uh, throughout this gospel, right? He's warned numerous times that families, households, friends might split up because of him. He's warned that Christians will be unpopular, and he's already told them that they could be delivered up to authorities. We know that lawlessness, cold-heartedness, these things are only going to increase and sadly, as he says, some will fall away and betrayal will even happen. So just like these false Christs, right, we should beware of false prophets, those claiming to be a Messiah, those uh, claiming to be the Lord. And we should, be, we should seek to be those who endure to the end, clinging to Jesus Christ. Because amidst of all this hostility that it's talked about between verses 4 and 13, there is some good that will come in this time. There is the gospel going forth. Verse 14 tells us the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So to this question of what are the signs that the disciples are looking for, we get sort of a, a half answer, right? This list uh, lists some things that are going to happen, but again, he says, when you see these things, the end is not yet, it's the beginning of the birth pains, right? And there's a and reason this analogy is used. I think it's helpful in this passage. It's really helpful for this whole chapter, this idea of, you know, like a woman in labor in the beginning of birth pains. 
Because I don't know how much experience you have with labor. I don't have first-hand experience, but I've been there when my wife has gone into labor a few times. When they go into labor, right, and those birth pains begin, what do they know? They know, well, something's about to happen. They know it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And they know that at the end of that, right, there is something joyful, something good to happen. And in the same way, when we see these things, when we see wars and rumors of wars, we see people claiming to be the Christ uh, who are not, when we see um, um, you know, people being betrayed and, and led astray, these things should tell us, right, that it's probably only going to get worse. There's probably going to be bad coming, just like sort of when a woman's labor starts. There's more more pain coming. But just like the joy when, when the baby arrives, right, our Savior is coming back. So I think this analogy is, is really helpful, right? When we see these things, wars, rumors of wars, uh, people being led astray, false prophets, don't be discouraged. Let these things remind you that, yes, there are hard times, but that our Savior is coming back. He's going to rescue us, and he is going to save his people. Now, ask for this question of when. When will these things take place? Well, the answer thus far seems to be that, well, there's going to be a lot of things bad happening. The gospel is going to go forth. And once it's gone to all nations, then the end will come. So while it might be a stretch to say that we can understand exactly what that means, right, there's some idea that Jesus isn't going to come back until the gospel has gone to all nations. Now, how we define what they meant by nation uh, is something that scholars and theologians have been debating for thousands of years. But the idea is still the gospel is going to go forth as a testimony to all nations. Therefore, I want to submit that in answering the disciples' question, which was a bit misguided at first, right? Jesus here offers sort of a general or preliminary answer. As we'll see more clearly in a minute, just about all of these signs uh, in some shape or some form happened between Jesus' death and resurrection in the year 70 AD. But then they're also continuing to happen. They're also continuing to happen ever since. When has there been a time when there haven't been wars or rumors of wars? When haven't there been famines, earthquakes, and natural disasters? When has the world not been filled with uh, people betraying one another and hatred, right? These are signs, in a sense, that they're ongoing, and they should always remind us that the end is coming and Jesus is coming back. Trials and tribulations will come, but we know he's coming back. But remember, the disciples asked him about this idea of the temple, right? He says the temple won't have a stone left on top and the signs that would accompany that. Likewise, they want to know when Jesus is going to come back at the end of the age. So I think so far, Jesus has only given sort of preliminary answers. But now as we move on to verse 15, he seems to focus here on this idea of the destruction of the temple. So let's look at verses 15 to 20. It says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, so again, he seems to be moving on to talk about something slightly different going on now. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So he starts here talking about this abomination of desolation. If you're wondering what that is, it's a good question. It's been, you know, debated and talked about quite a bit. comes out of the book of Daniel, uh, and it's sort of notoriously difficult to understand. Um, 
but it likely refers to, at least the, the sort of translation of these words, refers to some sort of like horrible sacrilege, something that's a, a huge breaking, like a, a clear and sort of gross breaking of God's covenant with the people of Israel. Many refer to this as an event that happened in the period between the Old and New Testament. You've heard of like Maccabees. It's, it's this sort of thing where uh, a pagan ruler came in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God, which if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, that's a, a big no-no, right? That's a big uh, sacrilegious event. But here, Jesus seems not to be referring to that, but to be telling them, again, warning them what's going to happen when another horrible sacrilege happens. Speaking likely of the destruction of the temple in the year 70. He says, so when that happens, when a pagan ruler comes in again to destroy God's temple, what should you do? And he tells them, right, that they should run to the hills. They should flee to the mountains, right? Jesus speaks of the horrible circumstances that would accompany this. They should flee to the mountains. They should pray and hope that they're able to travel, right? It's a lot harder to travel if you're pregnant or nursing an infant, right? It's a lot harder to travel, especially if you're, if you're Jewish, right, on the Sabbath because places of business will be closed. Things will be, uh, the gates might be closed, that sort of thing. So when this horrible event happens, and he says, let the reader understand. So when you see a sacrilege happening in the holy place, this is what you should do. You should flee and you should run away. And remember what we spoke of at the beginning, right? The brutality of the Roman army. We know that many people did flee at that time. Many Jews left Judea and scattered. We know that when it happened, it was a horrible, horrible time for the Jewish people. What Jesus is saying here about how hard it's going to be, how hard it will be for uh, uh, those pregnant, those nursing, traveling in winter, the Sabbath, etc., that pretty much goes with what we know about the Roman uh, invasion of Jerusalem. So now let's look then at verses 21 to 31. He says, for then, or at this time, or sort of going on from this time, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So we see here Jesus is saying, after talking about what they should do when the temple is destroyed, that from then, or, or sort of at this time moving forward, here's what's going to happen. And he repeats actually a lot of the things that were talked about in verses 4 to 14, right? So we seem to get events that are going to lead up to Christ coming back. In verses 27 to 31, it talks specifically about Jesus' eventual return. 
So these are the things that would happen. So they're warned again that life will be difficult, it's going to be hard, there will be false prophets who perform great signs, but you're not to be led astray and follow them. When Jesus Christ returns, it's going to be universal and unmistakable, right? So don't go, if they say, he's out there in the wilderness, go there, or he's in this room over here, go see him. He says, don't listen to that. When he comes, it's going to be like lightning in the sky, seen from everywhere, and like vultures going to a dead body, everyone's going to go around and want to see it, right? Jesus says, look, I've shown you this beforehand. So if someone comes claiming to be a prophet of mine, don't buy it, right? We know not to be deceived. We know that we should be ready for Christ's return by listening to him and not following false teachers. And here, the return of Jesus is both wonderful and terrifying, if we see this, right? It's wonderful for those who have repented and put their trust in him, but as he says, it's terrifying for the, quote, tribes of the earth, right, who will mourn, right, because justice is coming. The worldly will mourn because this will be a difficult time, right? The Lord will return, the angels, angels will call out, and those who have repented of sin and placed their faith in Jesus, the elect, says they will be gathered to their Savior. And this now is clearly the end, right? This is the return of Jesus. So it seems that the events of verses 21 to 31 roughly correspond to the time between the destruction of the temple and the end times. And again, we see many things from these verses that are happening you know, all the time, right? There are always things that could lead us astray. There are always tribulations, right? There are always struggles. And we could go back to what he says in verses 4 to 14 and see, right? These things are happening all the time. But now let's look briefly at verses 32 to 35. And this is where things, if they weren't murky enough, get a little bit more so. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we see here, he says, the lesson of the fig tree, which is basically the same thing uh, as the lesson of birth pains, right? Like we, shouldn't, we should not be surprised as things look more and more like the trials and tribulations Jesus is talking about. The same way that we can look at a tree or a plant and that should tell us you know, what season is coming. Elise could tell you way more about that if you want to know about plants and gardening and what to look for. Uh, but I know enough to know, right, when you see certain things on a plant, that means spring is coming or winter is coming or fall is coming, right? In the same way, we should be able to look around and see this world needs Jesus. We can also see the Gospels going forth, and we can see that things will likely be difficult for Christians until Jesus returns. As verse 33 says, right? When we see these things, we know that Christ is near at the very gates. But then what is this talk in verse 34, right? Where he says these things will take place before, quote, this generation passes away. Of course, this is hotly debated and many people think this is a clear example of contradiction in the Bible, right? You have earlier, he says the gospel is going to go to all nations. Now he's saying this is all going to happen in this generation. What are we to make of this? <clears throat> Him saying that this will all take place before the contemporary generation passes away. But ultimately, I think 
our interpretation will hinge on what he means by these things. And this is why I've mentioned sort of over and over this destruction of the temple that happened in 70, uh, the year 70, right? A generation is about 40 years, give or take, in Scripture. We know that Jesus is ministering right around the year 30, likely in that vicinity. And so these things are, in some sense, the signs that we've already discussed. And this is why I mentioned that all those warnings in verses 4 to 14, they both happened uh, in that generation, but they also continue to happen. As one commentator put it, I read this week, I found it very helpful, he said, everything that needed to take place prior to Jesus' return would have happened before 70 AD. Therefore, Christians for all time should live in expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. As I was researching this passage, I came across what I thought was a, a helpful chart that probably puts it uh, in better terms than I can explain. Is there any chance we have it on the screen? Maybe. I don't know if we are able to get it. But the idea is, if it goes up there, I'll, I'll look at it, but on the left-hand column, you have the predictions from the text. In the middle, you have the specific ways it was sort of uh, fulfilled before 70 AD, but also, hey, very nice. Then you also have sort of the final fulfillment, right? So how are these things, how could someone look at this verse and say, this all happened before the contemporary generation passed away? Well, there were prophets who predicted that God will deliver Jews from Rome. That was, of course, false, because the Jews were defeated by Rome. Rome is often at war. We know that there were famines in this time. Of course, there are still troubles and famines today. My only slight disagreement with this chart is maybe instead of putting final fulfillment, we could have just put how these things are ongoing even today. Right? We know that the gospel is proclaimed uh, through, in the book of Acts through the known world. Right? Paul talks about how he's going to the ends of the empire to spread the gospel. So as far as they knew, that was the whole world. We now know, of course, there's much more of the world. The idolatrous Roman armies would invade, fight and kill people even in the temple. Jerusalem's fall foreshadows the end of earth's powers. Fulfillment of prophecy shows Jesus' reign in heaven. So again, we can see here that much of the stuff that was predicted in these verses did happen prior to 70 AD. And in many ways, because Jesus is trying to answer their question when they said, so what's gonna, what, when do we know the temple's gonna go down and you're gonna come back? And Jesus is saying, well, listen, those are two separate things. The temple's gonna go down in 70, and that, this will all take place before this generation is gone. And then there's other things before I come back. So again, I hope this is, is helpful to think about, right? There's really no reason to, to fear verses like this, and, uh, nor to make the claim that says we must, uh, that Jesus must come back in that generation, right? The signs that he predicted did take place, and one of the things that disciples were asking about, sorry, the, the destruction of the temple did take place in that time period. And I think the confusion here, like I just mentioned, rests in the disciples' question, them assuming that the destruction of the temple and Jesus coming back would happen at the same time. It's clear throughout the New Testament that tough times are coming for Christians. That was true in the first century, and it's true today. Luckily, we know in the next verse that Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So let us trust in his words. Moving on to our final section then, let's look at verses 36 through 44. I think verse 36 is here the sort of crucial thesis statement for all of us to remember about this passage. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, 
not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So he has said in verse 34, this is all going to take place in the time of this generation. And now in 36, he seems to switch gears right to talk about when Jesus is coming back. And on that day, no one knows the day or the time. We're reminded again to be ready. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows. I remember, maybe I'm going to sound old to some of you now, but I remember 2012 when everybody was talking about like Mayan calendar and how they knew the day. I remember there was a pastor near where I lived who told us the day it was going to happen, and it was like a Friday. I just remember thinking, he's a hypocrite if he prepares a sermon for that Sunday. He better not. He better come to church on that Sunday totally unprepared because he's claiming that he knows that the day Jesus is going to come back. We don't know. And again, just to reiterate, Jesus' point here is not to satisfy all of our curiosity, give us the roadmap. Tell us, you know, what everything in Revelation means. He's exhorting his disciples that though tough times are ahead, that rather than giving into despair and discouragement, rather than react to what's going on in sin or frustration, they should be ready because no one knows. We see here a passage reminding us also of Jesus' human nature, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. He knows things that are going to happen in the future, the destruction of the temple, for example, But clearly, on this matter of when uh, his second coming is going to happen, we see his human nature, right? Only the Father knows. He goes on to tell them that life will probably look like it did in the days of Noah. If you remember the story of Noah in Genesis, right? Up until the time the flood came, to most people on earth, they just were living the way they'd always lived, right? He says they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, just going on with life as normal, And then one day, the flood came. Some were taken, others were left. And it will be like that. We don't know when Jesus is coming, and he will come at a day or hour we do not expect. So in verse 42, we're once again warned to stay awake and be ready. Be on guard for his return. And that's repeated again in verses 43 and 44. Look, if you knew a thief was coming to your house, would you sleep as usual? Would you go about your night in the same way? We'll see next week, uh, Jesus follows up this section with numerous parables that give this idea. But I think it's important to note here, right? If a thief comes, you're going to be prepared. I think many of you know this. In August, we had a vehicle stolen right out of our driveway. Uh, And let me tell you, if I had known a thief was coming, I would not have slept so soundly that night. I would have probably waited and had my phone ready to call 911, Maybe had, I don't know, floodlights or something. I don't know. I don't know exactly what I would have done. But I know I would have prepared and not just slept, 
right? If you know a thief is coming, if you know something is going to happen like that, you prepare for it. You get ready. Likewise, we don't know exactly when, but we know Jesus is going to return. Therefore, we must be ready. Let's read verse 44 one more time. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's coming back. And given what we've seen in this passage, I would say things in this world are going about as expected. Lawlessness, wars and rumors of wars. I mean, just look around, right? They're only, only getting worse and continuing to get worse, right? All of those things Jesus predicted, they're happening. In the same way, the gospel is moving forward, right? The gospel is being, the Bible is being translated into languages and dialects all over the world. More and more people are hearing the gospel. And so in many ways, exactly what Jesus said would happen is happening. Life is getting worse, and the gospel is going forth. And wars are happening all over the world. Does this mean Jesus is going to come back tomorrow? Next year? Ten years? Hundred years? Thousand years? No one knows, right? No one knows the day or the hour. So, instead of thinking about that and thinking, well, you know, I guess I'll do whatever I want. No, we know that he's coming back, so be ready. And if you're with us this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if this is all new to you, then I think the message, hopefully, is clear, right? How do you be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Well, you repent of your sin and put your faith in him in him. See, today we've been talking about Jesus coming back. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is good news. That brings us great hope. We can look around and see the broken world and know that there is hope, right? Because when Jesus Christ came to earth the first time, he lived a perfect life. He died a brutal death and he rose from the grave. In his death, he took on the punishment that we deserved. The punishment for our sin against God was put on him. And when he rose from the dead, he defeated death. So by faith in him, you can have forgiveness. And his return can be something that you look to with hope and not dread. If you have any questions about this, please stick around after. Ask me, talk to Graham, any of our members. Again, we're having a meal together, so come and ask all your questions. And church, let's be those who are ready. Let's not waste our time trying to figure out exactly you know, when each event might happen because no one knows. And Jesus makes that very clear. Rather, let's respond to this world and to all of the events that are going on that, should, that discourage us and make us frustrated and we should grieve evil in the world. But let's remember our faith and our hope. Let's trust in Jesus and look to him. Obey what he has said, and in a world that's filled with difficulty, with hard times, with tribulations, let's be those who spread hope, spreading the good news of the gospel and helping those in need. Let's love God and love our neighbor. Like a thief in the night, like a woman who has just started labor, right, we know that something's coming. We know that things might get worse, but let's be prepared. We're, we might be in for a rough time here on earth, but we have something wonderful to hope in and look forward to. So let's be ready and let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. 
It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.